when you take everything from a people, all they have left are their stories. And those stories are used not just as telling tales, but they're for instruction, they're for survival, they're for everything from things you shouldn't eat, the wives' tales. Perhaps it becomes myth in the telling, but I think it is rooted in reality. And it's like old school telephone. And then by the time that it went around, the message had been obscured and changed. The same thing happens with the legend, but I think the core of the legend remains. Okay, our guest today is Caridad Moro Grolier. She was born in Los Angeles. She's the author of Tortiera, which is a book of poems, a wonderful book of poems that we're going to talk about a little bit later. She's the winner of the TRP Southern Poetry Breakthrough Prize. She's the author of Visionware, which is from Finishing Line Press. She's a contributing editor to Grab, Poets and Writers Respond to Sexual Assault, Empowerment, and Healing. She's the associate editor of Swim, that's with two W's every day. Yeah, it stands for Supporting Women Writers in Miami, and we put out a poem through our poetry journal, online poetry journal, for women and female-identifying poets. Cody Dodd has received a George Foundation grant. She has received a Florida Individual Artist Fellowship in Poetry. And like so many of the amazing poets on our show, she is a Pushcart nominee for Best of Net, and she's won a Lambda Literary Award. And she is a force in the Miami literary scene. You're a perfect person to kick off this next season because all of our authors for the next, I don't know, 50 episodes are from the Miami Book Fair. Oh, awesome. That's fantastic. Yeah, very excited. And so it's great to have a Miami author to start out. And also, you'll be there presumably for the book fair and I'll see you in person. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. So, Caridad Moro, welcome to the podcast. The book she chose was The Amazing, The Incredible, The Instant Classic, Song of Solomon from Knopf, the author, of course, Toni Morrison. It's from 1977. The fact that it's from 1977 actually makes it even more amazing to me because this book I think could be written today. And in 1977, this was a hugely controversial book. If you've read it in high school or you've read it, you know, whenever you've read it, you can understand why, because it is a book about black people from the perspective of a black woman. And it is not pretty and it doesn't pull any punches. Toni Morrison also, it's just so unbelievable. We drove all the way to Maine this summer and back. And I listened to it again with Toni Morrison reading it. The beauty of her language. One of the first episodes we did on this show was Middlemarch. At some point in the middle of reading Middlemarch, I went up to my wife and I was just apoplectic because, you know, I've read a lot of work from that period. And George Eliot is so much better of a writer than anybody. And I was just so upset because I was like, this is how good she had to be to get noticed as a woman in this time. And she couldn't even use her real name. Right. This just made me so upset. And I felt a little bit the same reading this book that like Toni Morrison is such an amazing writer. I mean, she could write the phone book and you would want to hear more about it. It's just beautifully layered and beautifully written. And the story is so perfect. And this is how good this book had to be in order to be the first person to tell this story. Well, and it won the Nobel. Yeah. I mean, you could have read it on January 1st of that year and known it was going to win the Nobel Prize. I am a Toni Morrison aficionado, and I actually met her at the Miami Book Fair. There's a church right outside of the college, and she was there. 
I walked up to her and I shook her hand. I bowed because she was regal, right? And she had that beautiful voice. I was so overwhelmed because it was like being in the presence of royalty. Her gravitas. And like you said, so layered, so beautiful. But I prefer this to Beloved. I hadn't read any Toni Morrison until this book. I know I can now freely admit now that I'm 30 years away from an English class that I was supposed to have read it at some point. Let's uh, start with the question that I usually ask about 15 minutes ago, which is why did you pick this book? I'm a reader and this book knocked me for a loop. I had never experienced prose like this. It's the kind of book that makes you envious that you didn't write it and just thankful that someone did. It surprised me and it taught me a lot. And as a poet, it's so replete with this beautiful imagery. I realized that writing fiction could be elevated to almost an amalgam, right? You could have poetry in fiction. And the two weren't necessarily these disparate entities, but they could make wonderful, wonderful companions to one another. So it really struck me in all areas of why I like to read. And I'm repeated readings. I've taught it. If you really want to know a book, teach it. It always surprises me. And when a book can surprise you again and again, or you see something that you missed the first time or the 10th time, I find that just to be an incredible gift. When did you read it for the first time? In graduate school. So I want to say somewhere between 95 and 97. Oprah Winfrey, she would invite the author and then a selected group of readers and they'd come and they'd discuss it. And for Toni Morrison, they went to Oprah's house. And it was this very motley crew. They each sent in letters and they were chosen by Oprah herself. And they sat around talking and Toni Morrison read from the book. And I ended up showing that particular episode. It was my first year teaching out of grad school. I taught at Amiga Earhart Junior High School in Hialeah at night to actually one of the most lovely group of women. It was all women. Students, they were working all day, coming to school at night. They were hustling. They were struggling. And I showed this to them and it marked them. So this became this tool that I kept passing down and this beauty and the lives here. Yes, it's about Black people written by a Black woman. And I had never encountered that either. But this story is also an American story an American story that isn't a whitewashed story. And the women in my classroom were all black and brown women. And for them to see themselves, not just on the page, through Oprah, which, you know, whether you love her or hate her, she was a huge vehicle for literacy and for reading for many people who had never thought of it in the way that she was presenting it. So being able to expose these women to this story and them seeing themselves come to life in not just a regular way, but a beautiful way with Toni Morrison's language. Wow. And every single one of those women wrote me after in their evaluations how this book had just totally galvanized and changed them. And after that, you know, every time you teach it, you reread it. And it's been with me ever since. I don't know if it was the beginning, but it was somewhere near the beginning of Black authors representing black life in full relief. I think this is a thing that white people don't understand that like for black and brown and Asian people and non white people, we've only been depicted in full resolution in literature 
for 50 years, maybe, where the lives of white people have been depicted in full beautiful resolution from Shakespeare to now, or from, let's say, Cervantes to now. So when a book like this comes out, it's not surprising now. You know, The Twelve Tribes of Hattie came out 10 years ago, and it was a great book, beautiful book. It's very similar to this book in a lot of ways, but it didn't have the splash. This was a unique story at the time. Now it's a story, which is great. And this is progress, right? Well, you know, it's interesting because I live in Florida where we have anti-woke law, where these stories, you know, they're trying to be tamped out again. It's woke to read stories written by non-white people? Yeah. It might make someone who's white feel badly about the legacy of slavery or racism or indentured servitude or things like that. It might make somebody feel badly. So I continue to read these novels. So... It's an interesting perspective because I think what you said, it just struck a chord with me that the 12 tribes of Hattie, like you said, it didn't make the splash because luckily it was no longer surprising to have Black people writing about the Black experience as white people have done for millennia. Therein lies the rub. It became a little bit too normalized. It became a little too present and whoa, maybe even better, more engaging, more evocative, right? then we get the pendulum swim, right? Now we're going to have the whole anti-woke thing. So yeah, so you teach school in Florida. And while this was not certainly on my list of questions to ask you about, is this book on the chopping block? Absolutely. And so is Beloved. I haven't seen if James Baldwin is on the list because I'm a pretty huge James Baldwin fan as well. I teach him every year. So I'm going to keep doing it until I'm told not to, but there have been in other counties specific instructions regarding culling classroom libraries, parents coming in to inspect and approve of novels and stories in libraries and schools and classrooms. Good Lord. All right. Well, if you are in Florida and you're sending your kids to school, you should move because they are not going to read anything cool. Or really become involved with local school boards because that's where a lot of this is happening. And I think that we need to pay attention to what's happening, local elections. Like we just had a primary that was woefully under attended and it's not enough just to tweet or post or TikTok about it. We really have to get involved and really pay attention. Let's talk a little bit about the content of the book because we've talked about its political significance, I think, and it is incredibly significant. But can we talk about just a little bit of like when this book came out? why it was notable when it came out and when it was set and what that world looked like as opposed to what the world looks like now for the Black people who are living in it. It transverses a long period of time. It's set in post-war, World War II, but we go back in time to, I want to say, it's actually Reconstruction because we get the background of Macon's father. So from Reconstruction through, I want to say, early 60s. Yeah, it's sort of like Reconstruction to Civil Rights. That struck me as significant, that it was between those two things. It's so funny that you asked that, because as you said, this couldn't have been written today. We view it through a lens. And so the lens for me is kind of timeless. So when you frame it like that, from reconstruction to civil rights, it's another layer. Yeah, that was something that really struck me when I was reading it, because Toni Morrison is writing as a Black woman 17 years after she was allowed to go into every restaurant in America. Segregation would have been in her living memory. It was part of her youth. And then writing this book that takes place in that world while she's living in what really is a different world by the stroke of a pen struck me as significant to her. And 
the book itself is trying to preserve a little something from that time. The characters in the book are able to make intricate and beautiful and complex communities despite their legal status as second-class citizens. And then the status within the status. Her gaze doesn't flinch from what she's talking about and the lives that she's portraying. And we do have definite commentary on colorism. We have definite commentary on class. Macon dead. Macon dead is awful. You know, he would have voted for Trump. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. I don't get him. And then, you know, her portrayal of this, I love it because it's humanized. Because we do understand, in a way, as much as we can, Macon dead. So there's nothing simple about any of what she's talking about. It's just like I said, this unflinching gaze. Here it is. Here's the story. What do you think of it? What are you going to do about this story that I'm presenting? She takes some very difficult characters and you can tell she loves them. And she makes you love them. I mean, Macon Dead was not an antagonist or an anti-hero. He is the hero of the story. Milkman, Macon Jr. I also would like to just dredge up an argument I had with a good friend. Just because someone disagrees with you politically doesn't make them a horrible person. Macon is a horrible person and would disagree with us politically. (laughs) One of the things that struck me in this was the role of myths and legends, how they're really taken literally. And the main action of the book, the sort of traveling part of the book is him following oral traditions to try to find his family and succeeding. This just struck me because we've done some episodes on this podcast about native archaeology. And one of the revolutions in native archaeology that's spearheaded by Dr. Paulette Stevies and others, her revolution is to listen to oral tradition and take them seriously. And she has had fantastic results looking in places that certain tribes deem as sacred and actually finding exactly what they described. It becomes fanciful over thousands of years. But the language of these oral traditions is known to the people who are participants in the traditions, and it actually conveys information to them, even though to an outsider, it sounds like just a fairy tale. And that was something that I thought she did beautifully in this book was that he was following these things that didn't make any sense, but they led him to the right places. Is that something that you talk about in your classes also? Well, oral tradition, absolutely. And as a Cuban American, all I've ever known of Cuba is through stories. And because they left everything behind, and I didn't even have photographs, right? I had to create these images. One of my favorite authors is also Louise Erdrich, a Native American author, and she uses myth a lot. So I am very drawn to that, and I think it is wonderful the way it's presented here. And actually, Macon's mother, Milkman's grandmother, is Native American. So that whole tradition is interwoven. And I think when you take everything from a people, all they have left are their stories. And those stories are used not just as telling tales, but they're for instruction, they're for survival, they're for everything from things you shouldn't eat, the wives' tales. Perhaps it becomes myth in the telling, but I think it is rooted in reality. And it's like old school telephone. And then by the time that it went around, the message had been obscured and changed. The same thing happens with the legend, but I think the core of the legend remains. So one of the things we learned about in jazz college is exactly the opposite, because one of the things you learn in jazz school is about African drumming. This is a big unit when you study jazz, because jazz and salsa music are essentially Western harmony and African rhythms. It's pretty much those two married and then some other details, but 
One of my teachers said that in a written tradition, like the Western tradition, the symbols stay the same, the stories stay the same, but the meaning changes over time. And in an oral tradition, the story changes, but the meaning always stays the same. And so in telephone, you end up with a garbled version of what you started with, because that's essentially trying to preserve a written tradition in oral form. But with a written story, I tell you one story and you remember Lucas told the story about how X happened to Y and the result was Z. So you tell the same story, but now it's A, B, and C, and the result is still Z. In this book, I mean, there's all these tales of people flying and Macon's granddad flew back to Africa, which he probably didn't literally fly back to Africa, but the idea that he was able to escape his oppressors through some feat of intellectual or physical prowess is probably what happened. Well, in the end, Milkman and Guitar flying toward each other, right? And the flying again is literal, but not really. The flight becomes the struggle. And that's what the flying means or the resolution of or being able to, as you say, get away from that. I mean, it was an inspirational metaphor about being able to overcome your circumstances through your own ingenuity. I don't know if I'm getting too sappy here, but just that everyone in this book has some kind of a gift and they're able to sometimes at their own expense enhance their community by using this gift. Before we move off of Song of Solomon, I want to talk about the reason why this book is challenging to especially white people, but also particularly a candidate to not be taught in schools, I think is because of the seven days. Do you want to talk a little bit about the seven days and just explain to us those characters in that story? The seven days are a group of men. There's one man for every day of the week and they get called anonymously. There's a Sunday man and they are vigilantes who go out and for every murder of black innocence, there is an accompanying murder of white innocence. So when they're the four little girls were killed in the church in the explosion, they use that specific example here. And also Emmett Till, they go out and they find a corresponding white person to kill. And it needs to be an innocent and it needs to hurt because they want it to hurt. Therein comes the essential conflict between Milkman and Guitar. That is at the crux. Well, one of the many, because we have many. One of my favorite, like, I love Pilate's family. I love that the holy trinity of Pilate, Reba, and Hager. Wow. And can we just take a minute to reflect on the power of some of the soliloquies and just speeches in this book? I mean, the scene with Pilate coming into the church and they're burying Hager, and she starts singing with Reba. And she was loved. Woo! Wow. Yeah, there's some speeches in this book that feel like a play. Like you can see the person in your mind acting it out and you just want to, you know, you just have to take a deep breath afterwards. But the seven days, I had this really uncomfortable reaction to it because of the way that they operate where their killings are random, the same way that the lynching of a black person would be random. My first thought was like, this is a terrorist organization, which is true, but they're just responding to the exact same thing. Nothing could be more just than doing exactly what they're doing in the eye for an eye world. I mean, this book takes place before Dr. King, before Passive Resistance, where you could argue that Dr. King was able to accomplish more through Passive Resistance than someone like The Seven Days was able to accomplish, but you can understand their motivation. 
But the seven days would have been hanging with Malcolm. That conflict existed. And I think, as you mentioned, Toni Morrison was living that, right? And I think that this was a great way to insert this very conversation in that book and talk about both sides of that. Because I can understand both sides. And who's to say that Dr. King was right? I mean, they both got assassinated. We never really got to see it play out. Because of Dr. King and because of Malcolm, we live in a better world than they were born into. But I don't know if we've managed to reach the best possible world. But, you know, slowly, one day at a time. So that's Song of Solomon. We're going to come back next week with Caridad de Mordo Grenier, and we're going to talk about her fantastic book, Tortiera. We're going to learn what Tortiera means, which is something that unless you are Cuban, you probably don't know. So join us next week. Thanks for joining us back here on the Book Society podcast after a long break that I took so I could finish my book. And spoiler alert, I did not finish my book. I'm a real writer now. I'm two months behind my deadline with no end in sight. But anyway, we're back doing podcasts. So see you next week. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor, and Santiago Ramones, who does all the editing and is really great at it. He has a podcast called Bit Depth, which is really good too. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. Really become involved with local school boards because that's where a lot of this is happening. You can also always move to California where Kendrick Lamar is required reading. (laughs) 